the whole Bankman-Fried family just has this, I guess, nothing left to lose mentality is going to make this case go six whole weeks, no settlement, and here we go. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, October 5th. Today, I'm joined by Teddy Schleifer to talk about the fraud and conspiracy trial against Sam Bankman-Fried, which began on Wednesday in New York. Teddy was in the courtroom watching Bankman-Fried defiantly stare down decades in federal prison as the prosecution and defense made their opening arguments. And later, Julia Yaffe joins Ben to talk about how the Kevin McCarthy mess on Capitol Hill could impact the war in Ukraine. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be. netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. I'm joined today by Teddy Schleifer, who spent opening day at the courthouse for Sam Bankman-Fried's fraud and conspiracy trial, which opened on Wednesday. Teddy, how does Sam Bankman-Fried look these days? Well, the first thing you'll notice, Peter, is is the hair is a little bit different. It's sort of a Think of it like a, like a Mark Zuckerberg with a, a little bit more of an undercut around the ears. And, <laughs> and the, the, hair, the, the hair is important because it was like a very key part of his image. And Sam was aware of that. Like the, the hair is gone. And I think that's supposed to signify a new serious guy, you know, ready to take accountability mm. for his actions. But not too much accountability, just enough accountability. So new look. That's what I was going to ask you because you wrote for Puck that you're just fascinated by the idea that as he faces down so much evidence against him, so many cooperating witnesses, and possibly like almost a century in jail, prison rather, like why isn't he pleading out for like a lower sentence? It does seem like he's not completely ready to take accountability and, and he actually wants to kind of flip a coin and challenge this whole thing. Right. This morning, Sam Eichmann-Fried met the jurors who are going to decide his fate. And I think the coin he is flipping is a belief that he can convince one of those 12 people. Remember, these decisions mm. need to be unanimous. One of these 12 people to decide that he did not commit 
all the crimes that, or, you know, enough of the crimes that prosecutors say he did. And when you put it that way, it's like, you know, Peter, if you flip the coin 12 times, like, what are the chances you're going to get one heads? Like, yeah, you feel pretty good about that. Obviously, the preponderance of evidence against him makes this coin pretty weighted. But, um, you know, as I sat in um, Judge Lewis Kaplan's courtroom this morning and watched these opening arguments come out, I was struck just by the confidence that Sam must have to walk into this courtroom. And, and maybe it's a false confidence, but, um, you know, Sam was tapping away at his computer. I was seated about three rows behind him. His parents were directly across the aisle from me. They were sharing a yellow legal notepad and sort of writing notes to one another back and forth with the same pen, the same pad. These are two law professors who know this know the case obviously pretty well. And the whole Bankman-Fried family just has this, I guess, nothing left to lose mentality mm. that is going to be make this case go six whole weeks, no settlement. And here we go. It was really a, a surreal scene. We heard opening arguments from the Justice Department and SPF's lawyers on Wednesday. Yep. What, what jumped out at you from those arguments, either for or against him? Was there anything new that jumped out at you? Sure. So let me uh, take out my single page of handwritten notes um, that were helpfully a piece of paper, helpfully given to me by a New York Post reporter. Who? Because I, I sort Old of snuck school. into the court. <laughs> I sort of snuck into the courtroom uh, last minute, and uh, of course left my notepad upstairs as part of my subterfuge, and end up having to basically beg uh, a New York Post reporter for a piece of paper. Essentially, the prosecution's argument surprised me less, Peter. Right? It's been telegraphed in indictment after indictment. Their argument, you know, was sort of stated in three words I wrote at the top of this piece of paper, which is built on lies. You know, they, they really simplified the entire case. You know, you don't have to know anything about crypto. Remember, these are 12 jurors, you know, chosen from amongst their peers. You know, they're 12 people who have jobs in construction or some people in finance. I mean, this is New mm-hmm. York City after all. But the crypto part of this was really, really downplayed at one point. You know, the mm. prosecutor showed what does an FTX dashboard look like? You know, what is what mm. is Bitcoin? But essentially, the argument was this is built on lies. Everything was stolen from customers and meant to finance Sam's passion projects. And it was all a lie is essentially the argument that is very simple, very reductive, but I thought very compelling from, you know, the first minute to the 30th minute. It was all lies, lies, lies. Mm. The defense's case I found more interesting because we frankly haven't heard that much of it ever since, you know, Sam's uh, Substack era has come to an end for people who haven't read the Michael Lewis book yet, which is definitely Sam's perspective. Mm -hmm. You know, let let me me flip my piece of paper over and kind of read you some of the notes from Sam's defense lawyers. They said that, quote, Sam didn't defraud anyone. He said that the prosecution was making him out to be this cartoon. Sure, some things got overlooked, quote unquote, quote unquote, FTX grew too quickly. But the metaphor they kept coming back to, Peter, and you, you know this from working at a startup, so or working at was once a startup, so you, you, you hear this all the time in Silicon Valley, is this idea that they were building the plane while flying it. Um, it's sort of a cliche. That metaphor was used, I think, like six or seven times. Uh-huh. That Sam was in over his head. He was building this plane while flying it. That he made quote unquote reasonable decisions. You know, at one point on this kind of on this reasonable standard, you know, he said that as his lawyers said that it was reasonable to quote, try to get Tom Brady to star in one of your ads and that you shouldn't kind of have hindsight bias when judging Sam's actions. And that's essentially going to be their argument that he was acting in good faith and that this was decisions that went wrong because of the storm, quote unquote, to continue the plain metaphor that hit the company in 2022, but that he was not a criminal. There was no fraud. There was no lie. I think this was just 
you know, a, a, a business mistake and a businessman's decisions that ended up backfiring, but there was no lie for this company to be built upon. I would like to tell our listeners that Teddy is also rolling the dice in a way because he's recording this podcast on an Acela train between New York and DC with Wi-Fi tethered to his iPhone. Bless you, Teddy. Podcast producers everywhere will uh, appreciate this feat. Thank you for joining us, buddy. Keep us posted. I'm a crafty guy, and you know uh, this is this is this is this is part of how journalism is done. You know, uh, you got <laughs> exactly. you got you got you got to weasel your way into the courtroom. You got to weasel your way onto Wi-Fi into the conversation. <laughs> Go us. Thanks, Peter. When we come back, Julia is here to talk about how the leadership vacuum in the House could impact the war in Ukraine. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com therapy60. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Julia Yaffe. Happy Thursday. Hi, happy Thursday. Julia, I want to get into the House Speaker drama and what Kevin McCarthy's ouster possibly means for Ukraine funding. But first of all, congratulations on the new podcast. Uh, I just listened to the first two episodes this morning. It's called About a Boy, the Story of Vladimir Putin, and it is absolutely fantastic. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for all your help on it. As you know, it grew out of a piece that you and I did together back in May of 2022. And it's about Putin's childhood and its historical, sociological, anthropological look into, at least the first two episodes are, into kind of what kind of society Putin was born into. And this thing, then we'll get into this thing called a dvor, which is an urban courtyard which is a whole universe, especially for Soviet baby boomers, because that's kind of where they grew up and where they learned how to deal with people and what the world was like. And for people from that space, from Russia, from Ukraine, from the whole post-Soviet space, they see that in Putin. They understand that that's the kind of world he came from because of how he talks, how he moves, how he makes decisions. And Americans just don't know about that. So we decided to tell this story. It's just five episodes, and I really hope you'll like it, or I hope you'll like it as much as Ben liked it. 
Yeah, I hope everyone goes and checks this out. It's a co-production between Puck and Odyssey, a five-episode miniseries. And yes, as you noted, the sort of central theme here is such an important translation key, as you put it, in the podcast for Westerners who want to understand Putin's, not just his background, but really his, his psychological state, how he looks at the, at the world, which is really as like a gangster, a boy who grew up in this Soviet-era courtyard where mm-hmm. it was really all about violence and physicality. And deception, intellect too, but but really a, a sort of gangster's view of the world that continues through to his foreign policy and, and even the war he's waging in Ukraine. Yeah, it's funny when, when that piece first came out back in the spring, a good friend of mine who is from Lagos heard it and he was like, oh, he's just, Putin's just an area boy. We have those too. And I think a lot of uh, cities have them, but in most cities, that person doesn't become president. And I think... Once you kind of understand the mentality of the streets that Vladimir Putin came from, I think it's easier to understand why he does the things he does and how he might behave in the future, especially in Ukraine and in this war. All right, well, let's talk about the, the, the drama that's unfolded this week in the House, because it does connect to Ukraine. It does mm-hmm. connect to Putin. And I'm sure Putin finds this mess totally hilarious. Democracy is messy. But um, there are real and legitimate fears now with Kevin McCarthy out, someone like Steve Scalise or Jim Jordan possibly coming in, that it's going to get even harder to keep funding the war in Ukraine. Obviously, Republicans don't control the Senate. They don't control the White House. But there is this small group in the House that has this sort of suicide bomb wrapped around the speaker through this threat to initiate a motion to vacate, which we saw just happen to McCarthy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, despite the fact that McCarthy pushed through this continuing resolution recently, which did not have more funding for Ukraine, he has been sort of overall supportive of the war effort and the aid going there. But, you know, the next speaker may not be. So what are you hearing inside Washington in terms of how this fallout might impact all that? Yeah, it's interesting because McCarthy, like with everything else, you know, he was for it before he was against it before he was for it again. He said whatever it took to be speaker, whatever people wanted to hear from him, you know, he only had the job for nine months or however many Scaramucci's that is. (laughs) So he at times has said, we don't want to send Ukraine a blank check. Other times he said he supports the Ukrainians' efforts. He's trying to square that circle. But what's interesting about this is that if it were to come for a vote on the floor, even a standalone Ukraine funding bill, it would pass overwhelmingly, including among Republicans. Like a majority of House Republicans want to send aid to Ukraine. And what's more is that Republican donors want to send aid to Ukraine. You know, I've been hearing from people connected to the Congressional Leadership Fund, which is, you know, the kind of Republican speakers fundraising arm. And they're saying their donors want funding for Ukraine, but this like very loud part of the base doesn't necessarily. And this very small minority of people in the House don't want it. And even there, there as we've written about in Puck, there's you know a split that people like Marjorie Taylor Greene want less aid for Ukraine, more accountability. But Matt Gates, who single-handedly took out the speaker as one of 435 people, he wants no money for Ukraine. And again, that's not a majority position, even among Republicans in the House. And still, like, the chatter around D.C. is that, on one hand, they can't imagine how a new speaker would be able to bring that to the floor for a vote. 
but then at the same time, a kind of confidence that it will happen anyway, because it's just what the majority wants. Yeah, Julia, I think that's a really important and interesting distinction to make. The majority of Republicans, they, they do support the Ukraine war overall. There is still this feeling of support for, you know, Reagan's peace through strength doctrine. McConnell is one of those people who believes very firmly that, in fact, this war is significantly degrading Russia's military and, and by extension, China's strength for a fraction of the Pentagon budget totally. and no loss of American life. But to your point, I mean, it really does at this point in-house that's controlled by Republicans, but really actually controlled by just 10 or 20 far-right members who hold it hostage. Those are the people who are dictating policy on some level. And then in the presidential race, we see in the primaries, again, whether or not the majority of Republicans actually support this war, you probably have a majority of candidates who are up on that stage who are either saying that they, they don't support further aid to Ukraine or that they only wanted to go out with a lot of oversight and a lot of caveats about how it's spent. Yeah, exactly. And in some ways, that's because they're pandering to this base that Trump has kind of created and woken up and which has taken over the Republican Party. And so once again, you're seeing kind of, as our colleague Abby Livingston has pointed out, you're seeing the base and the donors moving in different directions. It's just interesting how the Republican Party keeps you know, Fox News and all and Republican leaders, they'll flirt with this kind of right wing and this fringe. And they'll flirt with it so long that it becomes no longer so fringe, but becomes more mainstream. And then they try to vote a different way, or they try to put up a different candidate. And it doesn't work because this monster they've created is hungry and wants what they promised it. And it just, you know, there was interesting commentary uh, on Wednesday morning about how these people are just, they just can't move right fast enough, right? They just keep getting swallowed up by that growing right wing that just keeps migrating further and further right. And also because the incentive, honestly, like look at Matt Gates. He is just, I mean, he's now the most powerful man in the house. And he was fundraising off of this on Tuesday. I imagine he, you know, we'll soon find out how much he raised. You know, the the right wing ecosystem also encourages this kind of stuntmanship. It doesn't encourage working together. And then the base wants more and more confrontation and sticking it to the establishment, sticking it to the swamp and the deep state or whatever. And so you have more and more people coming to Congress that aren't there to govern, like they're there to blow the whole thing up. This was just the speaker drama. We had this drama just last weekend with whether to keep the government open. And we had it before that in the summer, and we're going to have it again in November. And it's this kind of confrontational brinksmanship that seems to be really popular on the right. And on some level, it's kind of like, you know, if Al-Qaeda was part of the FAA, if it had some representation on the FAA, they don't want the (laughs) FAA to work. Like, these guys don't want the government to work. Like, they're there to blow it up. Well, speaking of the deep state, last question for you. You had some reporting earlier this week that, you know, the the Pentagon can sort of kind of fudge some of these numbers in terms of how much military aid they're sending to Ukraine in the short term. They can set the the market value or the price of the munitions, the weapon systems that they're sending to Ukraine at, you know, $10 million or $1 million. Like, who really Mm -hmm. knows how much these ammunitions are are worth? So there are some sort of tricks in the short term in terms of what the United States can get away with in continuing to support Ukraine, even if the money sort of officially comes to a trickle. But Mm -hmm. how serious is it in the medium and long term? Because I know you've talked to a lot of people in Ukraine, around Russia, around Washington. 
if House Republicans truly dig in their heels and refuse to give you know a, a penny more, how, how impactful is that going to be? And, and how quickly is it going to be felt? It won't be felt immediately, because I wrote the previous week, but it will have pretty devastating consequences. I mean, yes, the Europeans are there. They, they've stepped up production to meet the demand of Ukraine. We have also stepped up production and we have a lot of stuff in the pipeline. You know, a lot of this money was spent in the summer of 2022 and that stuff is getting made in part to send to Ukraine, in part to send to our European allies to replace what they sent to Ukraine, and in part to go back to the Pentagon to replace what we sent to Ukraine. But that's a very short-term thing. You need a constant supply for this kind of war, for any kind of war. And, you know, the worry is that, you know, Europe can't fully fill in the gap. You're already having noises coming out of Slovakia and Poland that they might be done sending arms to Ukraine. We'll see if that actually happens. But that could have devastating consequences. Ukraine will not be able to continue with this offensive, which already isn't going very well. There's a very hard winter coming up. You know, I I spoke to someone in the Ukrainian government earlier this week, and they said this winter is going to be even worse than last winter because Russia is going to continue pounding civilian infrastructure. And they need you know, those air defense systems to protect it. And if that's not coming, then it's going to be a really terrible winter. Uh, It's not clear that the Russians can break through. They seem pretty battered by every estimation. But I mean, that would be a victory for Putin. It's interesting, like this has been his and the Russian government's stated strategy. They have not been shy about saying what they're hoping will happen. They are just waiting us out and they're waiting for the 2024 election because they hope that Donald Trump wins and just puts an end to this whole thing. That said, it seems like Christmas is going to come early for them this year because Republicans in the House are making it so that Putin doesn't even have to wait that long. He doesn't even have to wait till January 2025. It's happening right now. All right, Julia, with that cheery thought, we've got to leave it there. (laughs) Always. (laughs) Thanks as always. And if you haven't already downloaded Julia's new podcast, go check it out. Uh, It's called About a Boy, the Story of Vladimir Putin. The first two episodes are out now on Spotify, Apple, any other podcast platform. It's great. Julia, thanks so much. Thank you, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.